Hello, and welcome to this episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Catherine Troyer, and I'm so excited that once again, I get to be joined by Tony Tresca. Hey there. This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us today for our discussion of 1979's Nosferatu, the Vampire. (laughs) Yes, I'm I'm so glad that you've added that level of gravitas by adding an accent that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. It's an important film, and so it deserves an important accent. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> so very correct. It's funny, though, that you say, like, it's a, quote, important film, because if you base it off of academic scholarship, it really is. Like, there are some texts we look at that there is nothing out there. There are books, right? Like, entire books just written about this film. And- really? I actually didn't expect that. When I, If you had asked me if I thought there was a lot of scholarship, I would have thought there maybe would have been more about the original Nosferatu. Yeah, yeah. Because there, there was quite, I remember there was quite a bit, and I would have thought maybe this followed the trajectory of like other kind of remake sequels down the line in which it's not as much. But this is a kind of a thing scenario. Yeah, yeah. so yes, because there's like a, a 2019 book that came out by Bloomsbury Publishing that I do not have access to that is entirely on Nosferatu. And it, it says it's a com- comprehensive account of the film starting with a discussion of Stoker's book. And here's why there's books on him or books on this film. It's because of Herzog, right? Because mm-hmm. like this book looks at Herzog as a director and his the evolution of his career. So it really has more to do with the fact that this is an auteur than, right. than anything else. Because a lot of the other scholarship really is talking about adaptations and remakes and, and juxtaposing Murnau and, and Herzog together. But because it's Herzog and because he's, you know, a white male d- director, somebody out there is going to write a book about him. So they did. Auteur law. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and you know how I feel about auteurs. And I would imagine, although this is me just making assumptions about people, I would assume he's also real intense. And I think like, you know, that's probably not surprising considering he's German and he's an artist. And I think that, you know, he, he demands a lot of this stuff. And someone was telling me that he's kind of kooky. I don't know if that's true or not. but uh, I earnestly don't know nearly enough about him. I've only seen him in like his, I think he doesn't, he, he's done some acting, a little bit of acting too. I'm going to check something, but I am fairly sure I've seen him in something absolutely ridiculous, like a Jack Reacher movie uh, with like the Tom Cruise. Like it's nothing important. So <laughs> he, he was in The Mandalorian. Ah, yeah. So he does, you know, he does do some acting and and he has some documentaries that are really good because one of the things he's really talented at, and I think Nosferatu illustrates this, is visually, right? He's a very cinematic and he's very good at capturing the wildness of the wilds. But I want to start with that brief summary that you provide for us of, of what's what's happening for those who may not have had a chance to see this particular Nosferatu. So, Jonathan Harker, we follow him. He's working in Germany. He gets informed 
by his boss that there's an opportunity to make a whole lot of money, but he's got to go on a super dangerous journey to Transylvania. But Jonathan, our budding ingenue of sorts, <laughs> he's like, I can buy Lucy a bigger house if yes, I do this. Yes. So um, he's immediately like, gonna do this. But he tells Lucy he's gonna do this. And Lucy is like, don't do it. Bad vibes. Yes. I think you're gonna die. And he's like, whatever. There's some real fun, like, woman, you don't understand your oh. faint heart <laughs> lines. That, yeah. Um, in there, because this is an adaptation of a book from the 1800s, I suppose. Or is it from the 1800s? Is that when Dracula yeah. was written? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Uh, good. I uh, just want to make sure I wasn't just talking out of my butt there. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Jonathan goes on this little adventure, despite all these warnings. And he, even when he gets at the bar and he's just like, hey, can you guys take me to this place? Everyone is immediately like, don't go to Count Dracula's house. It would be very bad. But of course, because this is a movie and we've got to keep things moving along, Jonathan goes to house, meets Dracula, who looks very ratty. Yes. Um, and one thing leads to another. Jonathan gets stuck in the house. Dracula is going back to his home in, in Germany and chaos ensues in the town. Yep, that's about right. And there's lots of rats, right? So if you haven't seen lots this film and you're not a fan of rats, which I actually think rats are rather adorable, this may be a film that, that gives you some, some hesitant pausing. So like I said, there is a lot of scholarship, particularly about Herzog and, and then as a result about, about this film. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting was some of the comparisons or analyses that were really situating Murnau and, and Herzog together. And one of them, which comes from a book called Play It Again, Sam, retakes on remakes and actually has on the cover a picture of Nosferatu, has a chapter by a individual named Lloyd Michaels that is called Nosferatu or the Phantom of the Cinema. And I just kind of like this passage because I felt like Michaels really articulated not just this film's relationship to the early 1922 film, but also just sort of the, the tone of the film. And so he says... There are phantoms everywhere in Herzog's text. In addition to the presiding spirit of Murnau and Kinsky's reincarnation of Shrek, Nosferatu the vampire conjures up the ghost of Stoker by restoring his original character's names and echoes mm -hmm. Bella Lugosi's famous line from Browning's Dracula when the Count responds to the cry of wolves, Listen, the children of the night make their music. Roland Toper's performance as Renfield which drew a mixed response from reviewers, seems more comprehensible when understood as an allusion to the stylistic appearances of Peter Lorre in dozens of horror films. Herzog thus evokes the history of what Eisner called Germany's, quote, haunted screen, in addition to referring to German painting and music. And then I thought this was really interesting. Finally, Herzog resurrects the ghost of Herzog in a number of ways that reflect his own earlier films. And so then he says, you know, by such a varied means... Does the film continually inscribe presence abs slash absence as a way of representing the spirit of the vampire? So I think I think that description does a really good job of situating where this film is falling in relationship to this huge long tradition of vampires and specifically Dracula, as well as just sort of articulating the very haunting affect of, of this film. Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating. It exists both as an adaptation and a restoration in many ways, yes. as you mentioned in there, of the original Dracula, while at the same time, I think 
it's impossible not to acknowledge just how much some, and some of it is just like even down to similar shots and co- shot compositions that it is just like, it's a re it's like a homage style remake shot by shot and some kind of thing to the FW FW silent film yeah. uh, from 1922. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting as I was watching this film, I was thinking about the fact that this would make for a really nice pairing in my adaptation and remake class because it's, it manages right. to be distinct enough in its own right but you can't mistake it as anything other than than a remake, right? And and like you said, not just a remake, but an homage, which is why I'm okay with it, because I, I get frustrated with remakes that want to discard the original, but you can tell that that's not what's happening here. It does subvert, I think, a lot of the 1922 film, and even in some ways, the original yes. text from what I yeah. remember, what I vaguely know about it, again, as I mentioned in our episode over Nosferatu in 1922, I had not read Dracula in full. You have. So mm-hmm. you, you'll be able to handle that those questions a little bit more when we get into the adaptational changes that occur, yeah. particularly like in the third act. But I don't remember a homeboy ever becoming a, a vampire or lead becoming a vampire in many other adaptations of this text. Yeah. So if I remember correctly, and I probably don't because I'm being recorded, um, you know, at the ah! at the end, yeah, at the at the end of Dracula, one of them, one of the crew gets bitten and dies. But but so one of right. the importantly weird decisions, right, is is that uh, he switched the names of the two female characters so that Lucy, who becomes a a vampire very early on, and and she's the reason that Mina and everyone else kind of team up to to destroy Dracula. Um, he switched that character and named her the side character Mina, and then named Jonathan Harker's wife Lucy. So that's an important switch, I think, because some scholars have argued that that was his way of sort of talking about the character of Lucy as being a problematic one in Dracula's narrative. I don't know if it was that or he just liked the name Lucy better. But, you know, there there are people who turn into vampires, but it's definitely not Jonathan Harker. I want to start, though, at the very beginning, because I have to admit... With the mummies? Yes. When those first two or three minutes started... I desperately wanted to text you and say, what if we just didn't do this film? Because I was afraid it was going to be one of those 1970s horror films that's like super weird, not in a good way for me, at least. Overly, largely based on abstract images. Yeah, based on a lot, largely abstract images and like weirdly uncomfortable sexual imagery, right? Because there was like that right. huge pelvic shot and then we get down to the shoes. I almost called it quits. In fact, honestly, yeah, if, if I had been watching it just for kicks and giggles, I probably would have paused it at that moment and been like, not today. Which leads me to one of our main theses on this podcast, which is that don't do a cold opening. Like, I'm just, I just can't get behind <laughs> cold openings 90% of the time because I just don't, they're not what I want. This particular cold opening, what did it do for you? Like, what does it do that's positive for the film? I, I'm not sure other than just kind of broadly set the tone yeah. of the like, we all go through this nap, this process of dying, and then to kind of juxtapose that with this tension that Warner is is going to be introducing into the Dracula text, I think, that is new, which is this like element that the Dracula character is sympathetic because they can't be they can't complete this life and death cycle fully and the tension there. So I would say maybe that the uh, starting with the mummies kind of allowed me to rethink about that thematic element that was going to be positioned in the text. But I also see the argument that maybe I'm reading too much into that. And it's just kind of sh- weird shots of mummies. Uh, no, it, I, it is I, clear. 
I oh, like I like what you just said. That makes more sense to me. I just hated it. What were you- <laughs> <laughs> But I interrupted you had a second thought. The other element that I, I I know it is also tied into the mummies at the beginning are also tied into the theme of epidemic, pandemic yeah. and plague because he filmed that opening sequence himself in Mexico where there are where a large number of naturally mummified bodies from the victims of an 1833 cholera epidemic that were on public display. So Mm. I imagine it ties both into the theme of Dracula and this tension of not completing that life and death cycle that will ultimately be resolved in the film in conjunction with this kind of fear, tension, and also kind of and madness that happens during plague and the upheaval of societal order. And also kind of how like you still look at that though. Like you look at that and that maybe, I think that's what he's kind of doing in those opening shots is like, why do we look at this? Oh, but we're going to look at it anyway for the rest of the time anyway. Yeah. I, I think the, the film's decision to, to create this emphasis on, you know, the plague pandemic and, and not just, what happens in terms of death, but also what happens in terms of how we behave. I think that was one of my favorite adaptive decisions. So we don't have that in Murnau and we really don't have that in Stoker because in Stoker, so the ship arrives and they're like, huh, so many people got sick and died, you know? But so much of that novel is about the idea like of how scary it is that we can have all these warning signs, but life just can kind of continues on and more importantly, society continues on in its trappings. And so everyone else just seems so oblivious to things. I mean, we don't really see anyone outside of the poor, but we get the impression no one's really upset or, or worried. Whereas I thought that scene where Lucy gets sort of trapped into having that banquet meal in the in the yeah. square and, you know, they're like, well, we're all going to die anyway. I mean, it, it felt like com- a lot of conversations that have been happening in the last couple of years, but it also was, right. it was creepy, right? And it was creepy because we knew it wasn't right and it didn't I feel also, right. And I love that uh, com- kind of like, it, it, it's a deeply sad moment, but it's kind of played for comedy uh, at the end of the film when they're like, we've got to arrest the guy because yes. he's just killed Dracula. And so he's like, why don't you take him to just some rant to the guys there? And he's like, I, I'm not I'm not the police. And he's like, there is no police. There's nobody here to do it. He's like, there's no one else. Where am I going to take him? I can't take him to jail because if I take him to, there's no one to guard him at jail. Well, I guess you'll have to do that then. Yeah. Like, yeah. Because everyone else is dead. Yeah, it was it was a rather hysterical line. Again, like you said, it was played for comedy. But if you pause to think about it, it's rather haunting. Rather, yeah. And and there are moments that he, Herzog, gives us the more haunting such as when Lucy is trying to talk to anyone in the square and she's like, I have a solution. I know what's happening and everyone's carrying the caskets and they're just ignoring right. her, right? Because the right. council has disbanded and everyone is is gone to their own places. And so there was really this interesting play between how terrifying that can be versus how comical it is because it just seems so ridiculous until it's happening to you. Yeah. And I think the rat imagery yes. in this film is very striking. The rat is like this symbol and bringer of the plague, but also because they choose to use the rat and rat-like elements on Nosferatu in the character design, him as being a stand-in for the rat and this very sexual desire yeah. and attraction to this bringer yes. of destruction, and which I thought was... A both disturbing and fascinating choice to make for the film. 
<laughs> yeah, so I would imagine that one of the hardest things would have been how do you take this title character that literally has become iconic in a way that, that we can't even imagine Nosferatu as anything other than the 1922 version, right? Like, how do you take that and make a character that stands up on his own and between the the makeup, which, like you said, was very rat-like, but somehow kind of endearing um, and, and, and a little sympathetic, not right. the I character is sexual, but it, I was not <laughs> sexually attracted to him, but I found him empathetic, right, in appearance. And I think that there's definitely very uh, bold and interesting choice to then have Lucy, to some extent, be visually, if not aroused, at least reacting positively yeah. during the blood drinking scene. Oh, yeah. There's at least some element of uh, enjoyment, and we are led yes. to perhaps to, to read into it in a sexual manner. Oh, absolutely. I think we're supposed to. And I think some of that comes from Klaus Kinski's portrayal. He does a very good job. Uh, and there's moments even before. So, I mean, when he's feeding from her, first he tries to, like, put his hand all the way up her dress. She stops right. him, but then he just has her hand, his hand, flat out on her breast the entire time. Um, there's no way to not read that as sexual. But there's even weird moments when he when he shows up in her space and he's like, I want your love. And she's like, I won't even give that love to, to God. It belongs to Jonathan only. Then he leaves and she says, good night. And I was like, there, there was this weird like courtship even. And she was like saying no. So I think you're absolutely correct that that there's a sexualization between them. But I also think this was maybe the gayest film ever. And mm, interesting. Yeah, go for so, it. So, yeah. So this is my like, because and I kept searching for this to see if this was intentional. In fact. I thought maybe like Herzog was was gay because that's like I did not seem like an undertone to me. It seemed like an overtone. He does not seem to be. He's been married three times to three different women. But we start with this arduous journey, which no amount of money would be, <laughs> be worth the, the trek that Jonathan takes. But when they're there together, <laughs> there's all of these weird comments between the two. So like Jonathan's mm -hmm. like, oh, your hand's so cold. And, you know, and of course... There's no other servants around, so I guess you all have to serve you myself. Yeah, yeah. And so he's like pouring the drink. And then Dracula says... Um, he's like holding that long, yeah, phallic uh -huh. wine, yeah. wine bottle. Yes. And Dracula says at some point, what a lovely neck you have, which of course, you know... He says to uh, right, uh, right, Lucy later right. on. So... Dracula, the original bisexual. <laughs> well, uh, seriously. So, and it gets it gets more in it. There's like a one line that I actually had a screen capture. But I think an important reason that it, it reads that way, even more so than the 1922 film. So in the 1922 film, you know, it's silent. So I think that adds an element. But Dracula and Harker have some pretty intimate conversations where Dracula mm -hmm. basically says, you don't know what it's like to not live what others have decided is a natural cycle. Right. And so there seemed to be a lot of like the love that, you know, bears no name sort of like concepts and some of the, you know, and he's talking a lot about like life and death and, and reproduction and all these things that. Right. So the way his conversation was coded just felt like a conversation you could easily have um, about being gay, especially if you're trying to figure out if the other person's gay. So so there was all of that as as well. And in Stoker's novel, it's important that it's not Dracula that the Harker is contending with nearly as much as it's his three brides, right? So in the novel, his, he witnesses um, Dracula's brides being fed a newborn baby, and there's and like they appear to him, and then Dracula's like, "No, this dude's off limits." So I think just again, kind of removing that element also sets this relationship up for at least a homoerotic 
experience. But let me go to my line that was like it's a it's a it's a compelling reading, and I know I know you have a screen capture. Yeah, of, I do of a line that you you had mentioned even before we were recording this yes. episode, but that you that encapsulated your feelings about the whole experience. It does. So once again, we have a book that gives you all the answers, you know, and they just happen there to like find the book, read the right passage. And Lucy reads a passage from the book. Yeah, as happens regularly to me. And it says, (laughs) and if a pure hearted woman diverts the attention from the cry of the cock. And I know that they were talking about a rooster because... There's a very like it's about, bib- the, it's, morning it's about the morning, the- and there's a vague biblical reference, right, to Peter denying Christ and and the crowing of the cock. But <laughs> the idea that that there's this line that says only a pure-hearted woman can manage to divert someone from the cry of the cock, and then that's what she does, right? She proceeds to to get between Parker and Dracula's relationship and like offer herself up so that he can have a quote normal interaction. And then at the end, when Van Helsing kills Dracula, that's what mm-hmm. Harker's upset about. He says, no, not not Dracula. He's not upset at all that Mina, or that, sorry, Lucy. That Lucy. Yeah, that Lucy died for him, right? He's upset that his beloved Dracula is gone. And there's right. even a moment where Renfield like, comes up to Dracula and he's like, master. And Dracula's like, Ugh. And he just like brushes him aside because he's too busy dreaming about, and at various moments in the film, actually staring at Harker. So, right. I don't know. It, it's, you know, it's not necessarily that they are gay, but it is so homoerotic that you could just like cut it with a knife. The tension yeah. is real. I think that's a great reading. Is there, is there a scholarship on that? Like, or is, is so, there anyone else written this or is this your, your ticket to the big time the big in time. academia? Yeah. Um, it's probably my ticket to having people tell me that I shouldn't write about things I don't know. Um, so, so at my Google search in Google Scholar was, Nosferatu, 1979, gay. And I was waiting for this like piece to come up that was like, here it is. It did not. There were a couple of articles that came up that were just more generally about, like there's one by Andrew Shop that's called Cruising the Alternatives, Homoeroticism mm-hmm. and the Contemporary Vampire. And in sure, here, sure. Shop has a section on Herzog and says, according to Sedwig's argument, however, the desire inherent in male rivalry is not necessarily sexual desire. It is a desire to bond by possessing something precious to the other. So, you know, he he references that idea that even if, you know, they aren't clearly actively having a relationship, the fact that the scholar has said that a love triangle can only be a triangle if all points connect, right? And so if both men want the same woman, then there must be something that the men want from each other too. But that's that's really, it's one paragraph in an article that's looking at a whole bunch of different things. So he mentions Eve Sedwig in passing, but there's nothing else. So it's either 100% there and no one's talked about it yet, or it's not there. And I just was feeling particularly gay, <laughs> you know, on a casual Monday evening. So I would say it makes sense for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's because of, there's something and I think about. it is also there. Like, yeah. I, I think that it's, it's in, is in the film at least. Like initially in that in the in the court they have a courting scene yeah. um at dinner they and they have a lot of those in, really deep intimate conversations. I, I think there's at least a longing there. Yes. There's a tension, whether or not it's sexual or if it's just or if it's just like really good friendship. Um <laughs> yeah. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you know it is complicated by the fact that Lucy like saves I'm not sure who she's saving because she's obviously not saving Harker. 
uh, at the end. She doesn't know it, but she's obviously not saving him. Um, right. And is she saving Dracula by allowing him to have a final death? I don't know. So, you know, I don't know who she's saving. Maybe she doesn't know who she's saving. And like you said, that scene is definitely erotic between Lucy and Dracula. All the scenes between. So, so yeah. So it, it's not as simple as I think just a Dracula, Dracula gay reading. Yes. But it's a Dracula queer. Yes. And the queer, it's the, this is, a, it's the bisexual panic of the 1979 <laughs> Nosferatu. Yeah. Maybe that's your, the tri-bi panic yes. of 1970s yes. Nosferatu. Well, I think that's it. I think that's a good title right there. There we go. That's there. It <laughs> is. Got the title. We've got the. You got the idea. Yeah. What else? What else does one need? What uh, else do you need? Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> that is how academic writing works. Um, just just slap a couple of sources on there, and it'll be oh great. <laughs> yeah. But lots of scholarship is about you know the fact that the vampires often blend and blur lines of of eroticism and desire. For lots of really interesting reasons. I just didn't quite expect it in this film, nor did I expect for Harker to not be fixed, right? Or or return to human. I, I was profoundly shocked, actually. From the moment in the castle, he is trapped. Yeah. Um, I think. And I think that's super... He's trapped first the castle, has to escape. But then when he gets out, he's never, he's never able to escape the experience that he had there. Yeah. They also, I think it's interesting, it's kind of like a you, in order for Dracula to get out of his situation, he almost kind of had to find someone that could take his place, not even necessarily willingly, but someone else had to take upon this mantle of creature of the night. Which is interesting if we think about this film in terms of progeny, right? Um, Mm. And... And there's lots of, you know, lots of monster texts are about that. And it's also interesting in terms of it as like a remake and an like a auteur, one auteur to the other kind of reading yes. of the film as a as the film is like metatextually being about this, uh, how and you might guess you kind of have to read it in terms of it's all coming from this one person that is based, that is an auteur that's mm-hmm. been inspired by another auteur who was inspired by I all I guess all writers are auteurs yeah. in some way. So this is uh, Bram Stoker's piece. So I, I think that's also another really interesting layer. It is, especially if you think about the fact that the final moments are Parker riding off into the desert. I'm not really sure where he's going, but we have to assume because he makes some comment about, you know, his work has just begun or something like that, that, you know, he's going off to create more and so there's this like interesting layer of like do you want your work to to have adaptations and remakes right because then that means that it's powerful enough to afford to have progeny but at what point you know i mean harker is no count dracula right so like what is the relationship between you know the first dracula yeah and the dracula that we see in this piece is also an imitation a copy an homage yes. to the makeup and styling and the idea of the 1922 performer uh, Max Sheldricks and the makeup that was used there and so it's like a it's already the dracula that we're seeing is a carbon is a copy yes. and then how you cut it's like you copy a copy of a copy yes and people will tell you that the 1922 film is itself a copy of a copy since no original 
you know, version exists of, of the film in its entirety. But what's interesting about what you said is that it's both Nosferatu and much more explicitly Dracula, right? There's no way to read the 1922 films anything other than an adaptation of the novel. But as we talked about in that episode, for lots of reasons, they couldn't call it that. Whereas this one manages to be both an adaptation of Nosferatu, but also an adaptation of Dracula, and they are not because, the same yeah, creature. Because they were, and they waited until the day copyright for Dracula came out and entered the public domain to go ahead with it so that they could include That's the fantastic. original characters' names. Which does a lot of shorthand for you, right? Like you don't have you don't have to do any sort of explanation about well what are you if you just call it Count Dracula, right? Like that just removes right. so much of the the guessing game. But I, I do go back to the like sometimes I struggle with films like this and, and vampire films and zombie texts do this a lot too, where it's like, why wouldn't he have known something was like wrong, right? Like in zombie films, whenever they're like, there's these weird things that are eating people. And I'm like, zombies, you know what zombies are because this film is made in 2020. Chances are they saw a zombie film, the characters. And like with this one, like Dracula, you maybe Jonathan Harker wasn't familiar with vampires. Like he had to have known something was not right with Count Dracula, right? Like he literally looks like a rat in human form. I just would like to see a film that doesn't necessarily say like, oh, it's a vampire, but does the like whole well, what would what would your response be if you didn't know about vampires, but you knew something was off? Right? Like, how would you act? Because I wouldn't expect him to grab a steak, but you would think that he would at least be curious. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think that's for another film. I, think I know, that's an, I know. Because I, I think this one is is too respect. It, it's it's never going to be that because it has such a clear respect yeah. for the stakes, pun intended. <laughs> so I, I clearly don't have respect for the stakes. <laughs> 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 that's but. so funny there were there were definitely some some beautiful shots in this film certainly the landscape shots were amazing and then that shot where he did what i think is is such a great way to make it clear that he's referencing the original shadow work in the 22 film but putting mm-hmm. his own spin on it when we see his shadow you know literally as well as figuratively overtake that the Harker household it was really pretty. It was a pretty film. I didn't know if it would be based on those opening couple minutes opening of mummies. Couple, yeah. yeah, definitely. It definitely. I definitely like where it went better after those opening yeah. couple of minutes. I, I also think I do. I did ultimately walk away. I thought I liked the inclusion of the mummies, mummies at the at the beginning of the film, and I think it adds to the thematic elements of this film. Introduces really nicely, um, and it, it's a little weird. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I so the the last thing that I thought was really interesting that made me very much like this film. So there's a line in the original book where, and I've mentioned this before because it's like the line that drives me batty, where they say something like, "Mina had the mind of a man, but the heart of a woman." And please stop talking. You know, but some sort of line about how you know she's very rational, and and that's what separates her from the Lucy character, who's very emotional. And sort of not supernatural, but definitely like in touch with having the ability and the right to change your mind that's often associated with being uh, a woman. And so I thought it was interesting because in the book, Van Helsing, you know, he I mean, they use science and reason to defeat Dracula. And and in this one, Van Helsing was was an incompetent fool, right? right. Like he constantly was delaying making decisions until he had quote more data. And at the end, you know, with that, with him being arrested, 
when he finally does the right thing, there's sort of this impression that like he's not even capable of of doing that part correctly. Whereas it's the supernatural, right, that's celebrated as like intuition and faith are celebrated and, and usually we don't tend to celebrate the more quote feminine traits. And I think that le- that's a, plays into like this element of satire that is introduced within the piece, satirizing the culture of a kind of bourgeoisie style town in Germany and just how quickly everything can kind of fall apart when these very natural like events such as I think Dracula's magic in, is coded as being that but also a natural, but also the rats mm-hmm. literally and the plague that they physically bring to the place and how quickly everything can fall apart. And I think that it's, yeah, I think it's really, it's a very sophisticated message. And I think it's interesting to do it. And you're highlighting the femininity that is played mm-hmm. in that in contrast to those more, ma- it's, I guess, coded as more masculine traits. Yeah, because every time we have characters that have defined themselves as being rational, they they aren't solving it, right? So it starts with Jonathan, who's like, I'm going to keep track of this stuff in my diary. It goes to the ship captain, who's like, you know, everyone's dead except for me and my mate, and I'm going to keep the log. Then it goes to the council, right, which disbands after looking at the data, and then just kind of descends into chaos. And then Van Helsing is constantly like, I don't know. But you're probably right now that there's like a gaping hole in her neck and she's probably didn't die of, of the plague, you know, and, and right. it's it's interesting how it's that element of faith. Because like you said, yes, it's supernatural, the plague and the rats and stuff, but like how quickly they descend into this just state of like incompetence is not actually that surprising. But but it, it, yeah, I mean, it's, I guess it's not that surprising to anyone who lived through 2020. Yeah, I mean, we, <laughs> we pretty much did it, right? Like, and so I guess, you know, in that respect, Herzog knew what would happen. But it also is just interesting that that's the direction the film goes. Thank you so much for joining our discussion of the 1979 version of Nosferatu sometimes called Nosferatu the Vampire, sometimes called Nosferatu Phantom der Nacht. We would love to hear from you, especially if you've had a chance to see the 22 film and the 79 film on Shudder, which is where I watched the 1979. Almost every review was like, you need to watch this in conjunction with the 2022 film. And I thought that was really interesting to just kind of be reminded of the fact that it's both a film in its own right and and an adaptation. So what are your thoughts about this film? Did you like it? Did you have a problem with the the mummy scene or like Tony? Have you managed just to appreciate that weirdness for what it was? What are we going to be looking at next, Tony? We are going to be discussing a television series that concludes our conversation of the iconic horror franchise, Evil Dead. We are going to be talking about all three seasons of Ash versus Evil Dead. Yes. Which we have the the privilege of, of watching together. And we haven't watched a, something together for the podcast since The Exorcist, I don't think. Yeah, it's been, it's been, yeah. So it's been a little while. Yes. <laughs> so this is exciting because it's our 75th. Our, our Ash versus Evil Dead discussion will be our 75th episode, which is wow. just gosh darn exciting. So I'm very, very happy for that. I'm also happy to talk to you because we talked like at the end of every viewing, but I'm happy. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about sort of your thoughts about, like you said, the culmination of of the franchise until the next film comes out. 
Right, which is supposedly this year. Yeah, yeah. So, (laughs) you know. (laughs) According to the Google search we did uh, after we finished our finished watching the season yes uh just recently so hopefully we'll be getting some more evil dead later in 2022 but you're for sure getting this evil yes. dead content in july yes so if you haven't had a chance to watch ash versus evil dead each episode is only 30 minutes each season's only like eight or ten episodes um and it's it's gonna be a lot of fun to talk about so in between binging that show tony what else should people be doing they should pick up their phones they should go to our social media accounts and they should let us know. Uh, they should follow us on there. Let us know what they like. That's the best way to get in contact with us. There are also links on all of our social media and then the description of this podcast to our email and other places that you can get in contact with us. Let us know what you'd like to see more from us in the future, what you liked, what you didn't. We always love to hear from you. You can also go listen to our old episodes. Give us ratings. Five stars, as I would say. Five stars. (laughs) Yes, always the five stars. And we do have some video content on our YouTube channel as well. I want to say thank you to Jackson, who does all of the editing. Thank you, Jackson. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm so glad we don't have to. Uh, To all of you listening, thank you so much for listening to our nightmares. And have a spectacular day.